Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Sarah Isles Johnston for a conversation about Greek mythology. Dr. Johnston is College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor of Religion in the Departments of Classics and Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University, based in the U.S. She has written many publications over her career, including a couple books as examples. She is author of the book, The Story of Myth, which was published by Harvard University Press. And she is author of the forthcoming book, Gods and Mortals, Ancient Greek Myths for Modern Readers, which is scheduled for release in early 2022 and will be published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the call, Sarah. Thank you, Andrew. Nice to be here. To begin with a contextual uh, question, Sarah, and to create sufficient background for the conversation, what is Greek mythology? <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's many different answers to that question and some scholarly debate about which of them are right. Um, for me, mythology, that word mythology, means a compilation of all the myths of a culture. So we could say Greek mythology is every myth the Greeks ever told. But Greek mythology as a term also means talking about those myths, studying those myths. So it's what you and I are doing today, as a matter of fact, as well. Okay. So contemporarily, how, how do people, scholars, the public, um, contemporarily, how do people know about Greek myths? By contemporarily, I presume you mean the Greeks themselves. In other words, how did the Greeks know about their myths? Um, I, I, I asked it broadly, so you could go down that path. So I would certainly take the liberty, but just more, yeah, like how, how, um, how do we know about, obviously people have written about it, but how did, how, and then, you know, and then more people have written about it. Um, but how did the actual myths that might have been very contemporary at one point in time in ancient Greece, let's say classical Greece, how how did those type of myths survive to get to more present present day? Ah, uh, okay. So yeah. how do we know about myths? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it depends what century you're talking about. There was a, a series of stages. Mm -hmm. First of all, the Romans loved Greek myths. And so the Romans kind of made them their own. And they changed the names of the gods, you know, the, what the Greeks called Athena, the Romans called Minerva, but they were telling essentially the same stories about those gods. And of course, the Roman poets had different literary habits. So if something gets into the hands of Ovid, as opposed to Sophocles, Ovid's gonna tell it a little differently. But this adoption of Greek myths by the Romans is the first important stage towards passing them down. Because in the Renaissance, people were reading Ovid. And so Renaissance authors made new versions and Renaissance painters loved to paint Greek myths, among other things, because it gave them a legitimate excuse to paint naked women. And that sold among the noblemen who bought the paintings. So I could keep going on like this, but it would take a lot of time. The short mm -hmm. answer, or, or what I'm really trying to get at, is that there's never been a time when Western culture was not interested in Greek myths. And they came up with a million different ways 
in order to make those myths their own in each generation. But that's why we still have them now. What would you say then was the degree of Rome's influence in maintaining or curating or passing on Greek mythology? It was major. Um, I don't want to overplay it. There were Greek, uh, well, the technical term is mythographers. Mythographers means people who collect myths together into books or into longer documents. So there were Greek mythographers who did that. But if it hadn't been for Virgil and Ovid and various other Roman authors, although Virgil and Ovid are the most famous, I am not sure that we would have anywhere near the number of Greek myths that we do today. We would certainly still have the Iliad and the Odyssey. And one hopes that we would, of course, still have Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, and some of the other big hitters. But a lot of the more, um, uh, I don't want to say minor, because that implies they're unimportant, but, but the myths that were not treated by the really big folks like Sophocles and Homer, we might not have those, or we might not have all of them, mm. if it hadn't been for the Romans. Okay. Um, what's the earliest written source that you're aware of, of a Greek myth? Depends what you mean by, by written. Um, go for it. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, go for it in your answer, however you want to take it. I, I guess I would say mm -hmm. Homer, although I hope that members of your audience are not throwing up their hands in horror at this and saying, doesn't she know that Homer didn't write? Um, what I mean by that is that the oldest myths we have that the Greeks themselves wrote down were those that we now call the Iliad and the Odyssey. We know that there were myths that were older than what we call the Iliad and the Odyssey because sometimes characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey refer to older myths. For example, mm -hmm. In the Odyssey, when Odysseus goes to the underworld, he's clearly aware that Heracles has already been there to get Cerberus. So that means that that story of Heracles getting Cerberus is older. Or to take another example, in the Iliad, in order to convince Priam to eat, Achilles refers to the myth of Niobe, so that's clearly older. But the oldest written myths I guess I would say are, are what we now have is the text of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay. And can you speak about then what, what's known? What do scholars know about before myths are written down in terms of the actual myths them, themselves, how they may have been syndicated and curated a, around if they weren't being written down? I love your word syndicated and curated. I love the word syndicated because it underscores right away the fact that we need to start thinking about Greek myths in somewhat the same way that we think about things like television shows, um, comic strips in the daily paper, etc. These types of uh, stories that are told a little bit at a time. Because um, that is how Greek myths were told. No one stood around and recited the whole Odyssey in one sitting. Uh, mm. The Greeks would not have been able to sit still for that. So I like the word syndicated. I like the word curated because it really draws attention to the fact that even though myths pre-existed, 
the authors that were relaying them in most cases. Nonetheless, that author had to think, how do I want to tell this myth? Or um, what previous version of this myth do I want to draw on? So, for example, Euripides. He may have been the first author to come up with the idea that Medea killed her own children. We're not sure. It was either Euripides or a more obscure tragedian named Neophron. But one of the two of them in the fifth century suddenly made Medea the killer of her own children. That doesn't mean that the myth of Medea's children dying didn't exist. It, it did exist and it did involve Medea doing stupid things that led to their deaths. But they curated by they, I'm talking about Neophron or Euripides, whoever mm -hmm. it was, he curated the myth. He thought about what do I want to do with this myth? How do I want to present it? How do I want to make it appealing to the people who are listening to it? And a little bit surprising in the same way that a good museum curator thinks about, hmm, how can I present the Mona Lisa in a new way that will excite the people who are coming to the gallery? What do you think uh, would have come first, uh, oral tradition or inscriptions and paintings of, of some sort that would um, be mythological in meaning? Uh, the oral. I'm a great believer, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm a great believer in something that a lot of cognitive scientists have been talking about for the last few decades, which is that what really sets humans apart from other animals is that we tell stories. And that this is probably one of the earliest things that human beings as we now think of human beings did. And therefore, I presume that it's at least as early as the making of artwork, although certainly that's early too. Any other, you mentioned earlier, um, uh, at least one writer, uh, I believe you mentioned a few, any other early uh, writers, and even if you want to re-mention re um, some of them, that, uh, that wrote or curated or syndicated um, Greek mythologies? Is there some, a, a few writers that you want to highlight? Hesiod. Hesiod's a really important one. He <clears throat> probably lived maybe a couple generations after the figure whom we now call Homer uh, for convenience and whom the ancients called Homer because they thought Homer really existed. But now I'm going down a different rabbit hole. Let me get back to your question. Hesiod is very important. Hesiod gives us the most famous version of the story of how the cosmos and the gods came to be and how Zeus eventually became the king of the gods after having to overcome his own father, Cronus, who had in turn overcome his father, Uranos. So it's this, this story of how the cosmos comes to exist and then father fights with son and father fights with son again. And finally, peace descends over the cosmos or relative peace at least, descends over the cosmos and the world is more or less the way we know it today. So that comes from Hesiod, the story of Pandora comes from Hesiod and where would we be without the story of Pandora? It's such a great metaphor for so many other things that we uh, talk about today. Um, various other stories come from Hesiod as well, but I'd say those are the two, the two biggies that we can't do without. So in addition to Hesiod, 
as far as early authors, well, I'm going to sneak in kind of a, a cheating answer here and say Orpheus. Nowadays, we don't think Orpheus really existed, we being scholars. I mean, um, we think that Orpheus was a mythological figure. But the Greeks thought that Orpheus really did exist. And they thought that a lot of our most important myths were told early on by Orpheus. For example, a version of the story of how Hades abducted Persephone, dragged her down to the underworld. Her mother, Demeter, had to fight to get her back. Orpheus was one of the earliest tellers of that myth. And Orpheus told a lot of other stories, too. He was supposedly a member of Jason's voyage to retrieve the Golden Fleece and later told the story of that and so on. So Orpheus is there in the background for the Greeks, is there in the very early background of myth telling. And I'm a big fan of Orpheus myself. I, I love the stories about Orpheus. I love the stories that Orpheus was supposed to tell. Um, so I'm going to put him up there with Homer and Hesiod. Does or Orpheus uh, show up in your forthcoming? book yeah oh yeah um, particularly the story that we don't actually have any remaining versions of until we get to romans actually but we know the greeks told it too the story of how when his wife died he didn't just stand back and say well that's the way things are he went to the underworld to retrieve her and he played his lyre so beautifully and sang so beautifully that Hades and Persephone said, okay, you can have her back, but you're not allowed to look at her until you get to the upper world. And that detail goes along with something that we find in many, many cultures around the world, the idea that it's unlucky to look at the dead. So in other words, until you get her up into the world of the living, don't look at her. But Orpheus blows it. He thinks that he hears her tripping behind him. And without thinking, he turns to look at her. And that's the end. She's back in the underworld, and they do not give him a second chance. So I tell that story in my forthcoming book. I tell about his time as one of the Argonauts and how he protected the whole ship from the dangerous Song of the Sirens. Um, mm. Yeah, and I tell about how he died. I'm going to leave that hanging there because... <laughs> I don't want to give everything away. <laughs> Did everyone like how I casually got the plug-in for Dr. Johnston there? <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, um, you mentioned Hesiod and writing about the Titans and, and, and such. Um, would, it be, would it be Hesiod's telling of those uh, that tradition? Would that be what's considered the oldest uh, tradition that... Uh, scholars know about was the Hesiod's telling of, of those events around um, the, 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 the Titans and uh, I, I might not get the exact name it's uh, like uh, Rhea and, and Gaius would that be would those be the, uh, the from a chronology perspective the oldest tradition? Probably um, if you've been talking to other classicists you know already that it's sometimes very hard to date things and we don't really know exactly when the poetic tradition that we call Homer was composed, for example. So Hesiod, he's, he's younger than Homer, 
But we think that probably the traditions that the ancient Greeks thought were Orphic, in other words, things that were written by Orpheus, they're probably about the same age as Hesiod. So, you know, let's say Hesiod is the, the oldest poetic tradition we have that we can actually be sure really truly existed. We're, we're sure that there was a Hesiod. But these fragments of poems that are attributed to Orpheus that we now know, you know, there's no Orpheus, so who knows who wrote them, they're probably about as old. Yeah, and your answer is um, perfect, um, Sarah. Uh, what I was getting at, because it's helpful, what I was getting at was something slightly different, and I know my question wasn't the, the clearest. Um, what I meant by chronology wasn't um, the author, like the who, who's the oldest author, but okay. more more about the tradition it, itself, because he sees writing about, you know, Titans, and then we know Titans come before the Olympians. So more like there is was from a chronology of the tradition itself, like the actual narrative would, would that would that one that he uh, have written be the the oldest? Yeah, yeah, um, okay. you're absolutely right. Okay. The story is that at first there's nothing. And then slowly stuff comes out of this nothing. And the first one of the very first things to come out is Earth. And Earth all by herself gives birth to sky. And then the two of them make love and start creating things sexually. And their children are collectively the Titans, whom you referred to a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And Sky is very cruel to his children. In fact, he doesn't even want them to be born. He keeps shoving them back up Earth's birth canal and doesn't let them emerge into the world. And finally, Earth has enough of this and uh, manages to hand to her youngest son, who's still inside of her, a sickle. And, you know, this is one of those moments where you're thinking, hmm, how does Earth do that logistically? But in any event, she manages to give this sickle to her youngest child, Cronus. And the next time his father arrives in his mother's bed, Cronus jumps out and castrates his father. And this is the end of the rule of Sky. So Cronus comes into power, but he's pretty much as cruel as his father. He thinks he's smarter. He says, I'm going to swallow my children. They'll never get out of my stomach. So he swallows child after child until finally his wife Rhea gets tired of this. And with the help of a couple other goddesses, she um, hides away her youngest child, Zeus, as soon as he's born. And Zeus manages to overcome Cronus with the help of his brothers and sisters. So Zeus and his brothers and sisters and their children are the Olympians. And this is the generation of gods that remains in power. Okay, so that's a perfect segue to what my next question was going to be. And it's the, the pantheon. Uh, if you Google certain certain terminology when it comes to Greek mythology, there's there's different phrases out there like the Pantheon, uh, the Olympians. You even see things like the Twelve Olympians. So what? How do you approach uh, all, all that? When, so how do you? What do you consider uh, the Pantheon uh, to be, or the Olympians, or even this this term called the the Twelve Olympians? Um. 12 Olympians, who you're going to put in that category, kind of depends on the scholar. There are certain gods who will always be there. Obviously, Zeus. You can't have a pantheon without a king. And Zeus's wife, Hera, 
and Zeus's most important children, like Apollo, Artemis, Athena. They're always going to be there. Um, and Zeus's brothers and sisters as well. So Hades, Poseidon, Demeter, Hestia, and then his, his wife, Hera, who's also his sister. But then things get a little bit more debatable. And for example, some people, and I mean both ancient people and, and modern scholars, would say, well, Zeus's sister Hestia doesn't really belong in the pantheon because she does almost nothing. She's the goddess of the hearth. There's really no myths about her. She's not a big deal. Others would say, um, well, what about Zeus's son Dionysus? We're running out of spots here. Does Dionysus deserve to be among the Olympians? And I mean, I personally think he does, but not everyone agrees. Some people would kick out Hades because they'd say he's the god of the underworld. You know, he's not up there on Olympus like the other gods. To me, that's kind of a problem because what, geography matters? If you're a god, does geography matter? So you see what I'm getting at. There's a pantheon of, let's say, approximately 12 gods. Um, and they all have, in one way or another, a close relationship to Zeus. They're a sibling of Zeus, they're a spouse to Zeus, or, or both, sister and wife. Um, they are a child of Zeus, so not just Athena, Apollo, Artemis, but Hermes, Ares, um, they fall into that category. So it's very much a pantheon with Zeus at the center, and everyone else sort of like the spokes of a wheel that come out from that center. Do you consider then all Greek uh, deities uh, part of uh, the, uh, the pantheon? In, in the way that a scholar uses the term pantheon, yeah. Um, pantheon is just two Greek words stuck together. Pan meaning everything. Mm-hmm or all, and theon meaning gods. So pantheon, all the gods. So I would, for example, include my personal favorite god, Hecate, in the pantheon, even though most people would never put her among the 12 big gods, and although she's not a close relationship with Zeus, but she was worshiped a lot in antiquity, so why not put her in there? My closing question in a bit is going to be similar to uh, your comment about uh, who your favorite uh, deity is, but it's a cliffhanger for what that final question is, is going to be, but it's similar. Okay, um, Mount, uh, Mount Olympus, I don't know if this is a, a, a quick answer. You might, you might know off the top of your head. How many uh, deities are considered to, to be on, to actually inhabit Mount Olympus? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. Um, particularly okay. because if you look at ancient literature there's no agreement okay. sometimes we're invited to imagine for example the goddess is called the seasons and the graces as inhabiting olympus other times those two groups of goddesses seem to be down on the island of cyprus waiting for aphrodite to arrive uh, etc so uh, ancient poets and the poets were the main tellers of the myths ancient poets didn't worry about that question. They just kind of did whatever was convenient for the moment. I don't know whether you're familiar with George O'Connor, who's a graphic artist who has done these really, truly wonderful graphic novels, one for each of 11 gods so far, and he's just now finishing Dionysus, and that's going to be it. He's only doing 12. 
But one thing I love about George O'Connor is he often shows us a very crowded Olympus. He loves to show Olympus mm. sort of like um, a constant party going on all the time. Sometimes the fates are up on Olympus. Sometimes Eris, the goddess of discord, is up on Olympus. And I think O'Connor is reflecting something that is actually there in the ancient sources. Yeah, so you're saying it's you believe it's not it's not as easy as just to say there's 12 or whatever the number is, uh, a, a finite number living on Mount Olympus. No, and think about the story of Persephone. When Demeter finally gets her daughter Persephone back from Hades, the actual deal is that Persephone is going to spend part of the time in the underworld and part of the time up above. So Persephone is a really good example of a goddess who goes back and forth. Sometimes she's in the lower world and sometimes she's up on Olympus with her mother. Can you take a moment, Sarah, and share how uh, ancient Greeks interacted with uh, tradition, with, with um, some of what we're talking about today? If, it, if the Greeks had not had myths, I don't think they would have had a religion. Because even more than religions today, and I'll just make a parenthetical uh, comment here and mm -hmm. say, you know, Christians and, and Jews and Muslims, they have sacred texts. And those sacred texts not only tell them what to do, but tell them about who God is or who God's son is. In other words, they tell stories that help the worshipers to understand that. Even more so, the Greeks needed stories to understand who this incredible cast of gods were what the gods wanted, what therefore the worshipers should do. And although this was by no means the only function of myths, it was an important one. If you heard a story about, um, well, Demeter getting angry at the queen of Eleusis because the queen of Eleusis interrupted a, a magical ceremony that Demeter was performing. So Demeter gets very angry and screams and the queen of Eleusis suffers for this. Even though the average Greek is not going to run into Demeter, and the average Greek is also not the queen of Eleusis, the story demonstrates the kinds of behavior that the gods expect, which in a nutshell is absolute respect, never really making a mistake in your interaction with the gods, and um, yeah, taking care to remember that you're human. So without the myths, Greek religion as as we know it, ancient Greek religion as scholars know it, just wouldn't even be there. In your research, um, Sarah, do any uh, of the Greek myths, um, is, it, is it clear to you that um, certain myths or traditions were sourced from other specific civilizations? Uh, and I, I can I can mention some as examples, but I'm not going to do that because I'd be kind of leading. But is there is there other civilizations that uh, you came across in your research that you're confident influenced certain uh, Greek traditions? Definitely. And in some ways, this is um, more a question for my colleague, Carolina Lopez Ruiz, with whom I know you spoke recently. Yeah, yeah. That's really her field of expertise. Hmm. And more specifically, how traditions that we call ancient Near Eastern. So traditions from uh, Mesopotamia or from the area that we now call Turkey, the ancient Hittite civilization, how those traditions 
which were older than the Greek traditions, influenced Greek mythology as it was developing. I would be careful, and I know that Professor Lopez Ruiz would also be careful, though, to emphasize that it's not a borrowing in the sense that the Greeks just said, oh, cool, let's take that story and we'll change the names a little bit and tell it. It's more that they heard these stories and then they allowed those stories to influence the ways that they were thinking about stories that they already had. And this is taking place over a span of, of many thousands of years. So it's a, it's a very slow and gradual thing. So for example, the story of the Great Flood. We get that in many, many ancient Near Eastern civilizations, including of course the Israelite civilization that we hear about that story in the book of Genesis, the Mesopotamians, etc. And we get it from the Greeks. And there's certain features in the Greek story that are very similar to the ancient Near Eastern ones, such as the idea that there's one God, in the case of the Greeks, it's Prometheus, who's looking out for humanity and warns a couple of them, hey, there's a flood coming, you know, do something. So in the Greek tradition, Deucalion and Pyrrha survive because they have a little boat and they help to repopulate the world. So they are kind of like Noah and his family in the biblical tradition. Um, let me see. Also, just basically the idea that I mentioned earlier today that in the formation of the universe, father overcomes son or younger generation overcomes older generation to speak more uh, generally. That's there in many Near Eastern traditions as well. Okay, and I want to ask about um, about the generations. And I think this comes up in the Iliad um, where I, I recall it coming up where they're speaking about the the kind of their forefathers. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. I don't have the book in front of me. But it, their forefathers are like stronger or tougher to some extent than, than they are. Can you speak a little bit about, about that? If you have any thought comments on what, what that, why, why that came about in, in uh, tradition, whether it was maybe oral tradition or writing, but the concept of their fathers, uh, their forefathers or the generations before them being stronger than the actual uh, people at that given time. That's a really interesting um, phenomenon. And it's there in virtually every culture. I am, by my own training, a comparative scholar of mythology, which means, although my expertise is in Greek, I'm constantly looking at other stuff, too. And so not just in the Western tradition, but in Oriental traditions as well, or in Asian traditions, we get this idea that, gee, the current kind of human, they're, they're wimps. We can't do anything compared to the older tradition. And I think it's part of a more general nostalgia, cultural nostalgia, which virtually every society has. If only we lived in the old days. Um, people were more beautiful. People were stronger. People were smarter. Now, why human beings tend to think that, I don't know. That's a question either for the psychologists or <laughs> the theologians. I don't know. But... It's there. So when the Greeks express that, and you're absolutely right that they do, they express it a lot. I, I guess they're just being human. Okay. A closing question uh, for you, Sarah. Not the closing question, but a closing question. Um, 
so when when you look at the different writers at the different times um and they you know and, and through that kind of chronology of when they lived the actual writers um and the traditions themselves so i want to make it a little more broad um did you see any very clear pronounced evolutions of traditions as you kind of went went through from a chronology perspective is there anything that's very pronounced that you think's worthwhile sharing almost from a macro level not off the top of my head i would say it's more a matter of stylistics in the Mm -hmm. way that people wrote the myths Mm -hmm. but i don't think the myths themselves change that much i've been Mm -hmm. Well, I was about to say, I've been reading Greek mythology as long as I can remember, but I need to amend that and say, when I was three years old, my mother read me the story of Pandora from an anthology of children's stories. And once she read that to me, all I wanted to hear was Greek myths. I must have driven my parents nuts. And Mm. my earliest memory of being a reader is that what I wanted to take out of the library was Greek myths. So this is all by way of saying... Uh, I've I've read probably too many Greek myths in my in my uh, life. Even looking at all of that, I don't think the myths change. Whether it's Homer who's telling them, or Edith Hamilton who's telling them, the myths stay the same. It's just the language and the style with which they're being told. And when I say the myths stay the same, what I mean is. The plots stay the same. The characters stay the same. Um, they're eternal. Closing question, Sarah. Okay. And probably closing question for the for the formalities part of the show, because I do want to ask about, if you want to share a bit about your uh, forthcoming um, book that you're working on, I want to give you that opportunity in a moment. But closing question for the for kind of the formal part of our conversation. What's your favorite Greek myth? My favorite Greek myth, in spite of the fact that Hecate is my favorite goddess, my favorite Greek myth is the story of Orpheus. I love this concept of the singer. And in Greece, automatically, if you were a singer, you were also a poet. And if you were a poet, probably what you were singing about was the gods. So you've got this this figure of a man who sings about the gods and about how the cosmos began and all that stuff that we normally include in Greek myths. And he's a hero. He's able to help other heroes. He does things like um, manages to help the Argonauts escape from the sirens, as I mentioned earlier today. So there's Heracles, there's Theseus, there's Bellerophon, etc. These guys who are heroes because they're strong men and they're, they're um, athletically adept and all of that. But of equal rank with them, for the Greeks, is the storyteller, the guy who knows his myths and whose business it is to tell them Mm. to other people. Mm. Almost gets back to that uh, syndicating uh, word that we were chatting about earlier. Absolutely. All right. So uh, we chatted a bit about this before, but I want to get it in the episode uh, for you. Do you want to take a moment and share about the uh the book that you're working on gods and mortals ancient greek myths for modern readers i'll i'll give it a shot um (laughs) i just finished the manuscript so it's going into production soon what i was setting out to do was tell myths 
for adults and teenagers, not for children, in a way that would make them attractive. In other words, I didn't want to be writing as a scholar. I try to write attractively when I'm a scholar, but um, this is attractive in a different way, I hope. In other words, I tried to make an engaging narrative that adults and teenagers could read if they were interested in Greek myth and wanted to hear the stories. I was also trying to be accurate. Um, not all myth books available today are accurate. And I was trying not to let my scholarly self interrupt the stories, not to say, oh, by the way, there's another way that this story ends sometimes. I wanted to just tell stories. Um, in a way, I'm aspiring, and only aspiring, never achieving, I'm, I'm aspiring mm -hmm. to be a little like Orpheus. Ah, well, there's a big appetite for this kind of material out there, and you're certainly someone that has a lot of knowledge on this topic, so I trust the, the book's going to be uh, uh, very successful, Sarah. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. All right, uh, so I, that wraps up. That wraps up the episode. Thank you for coming on the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay, everybody. The couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that uh, Dr. Johnston, uh, one is already published. The other one, as she mentioned, just completed the manuscript and it's forthcoming. Uh, so the four, I'm going to do it this way. The forthcoming book is Gods and Mortals, Ancient Greek Myths for Modern Readers. I will update the show notes uh, when that book becomes available and, and drop the link there. The book that is available is called The Story of Myth. I'll uh, provide a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Sarah and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now. In a way... I don't know if this will come into the podcast or not, but in a sense, and actually this brings us back to Carolina too. Mm -hmm. The story of myth is about, of course, how myths engage or engaged the ancient Greeks. And I did all that work as a scholar on that topic. And one day Carolina and I were sitting in the faculty lounge um, and she had been very helpful to me while I wrote the story of myth. So it had just come out and we were saying, oh, thank goodness, the story of myth is finally out. Um, and she basically said, you need to put your money where your mouth is. You've now explained how the ancient Greeks made myths appealing. Well, why don't you do it yourself? She and I each teach the huge myth class at Ohio State, the 740 person myth class. And she said specifically, if you think you know how to make myths engaging, go into the classroom and do it. So I started developing a way to do that in the classroom. And then she said um, sometime later, well, publish. So the current book really wow. did come directly out of the previous book. But the current book is also, I think, a really nice demonstration of um, how important one's colleagues can be, how important it is to have um, engaging relationships with your colleagues.